For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, I hope you've been here for the first three chapters of our study in the book of Romans. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus to a church in Rome, the greatest city in the Roman Empire. It was a church Paul had never been to. And it looks like what he's doing in the book of Romans, he's, he's laying out his entire body of teaching. This is the sort of thing where he'd show up in a city and he would teach. And um, this looks like what he was doing in the book of Romans. And so it's a very well-constructed argument. You can tell Paul has done this many times. He's, he's been talking about the good news and the bad news. The good news is that God has made a righteousness available by faith. And, but most of the book, he's been talking about the bad news. The bad news is he's been arguing the case for guilt, that the whole human race is guilty. Whether, or not you're, whether you're a religious person who's tried to be a good person, or even one of the Jews, like the people in, in Paul's audience, or whether you're an irreligious person, religious and irreligious alike, guilty before God, and hopeless to, on our own, be good enough for God. But the good news is that God makes us right in his sight, not because of what we've done, but when we put our trust in him by faith. And that's because of what Jesus Christ did, who died on the cross, paid for our sins, rose from the dead, and now offers eternal life to anyone who will receive his free gift. Can't work for it, but you can receive it as a gift. And so Paul is laying out his argument, and last week we, we studied the theology of justification being made right with God. And at this point, you know, he's expecting an objection. You know, there were many Jews in the audience here at Rome and in a lot of the audiences Paul taught to. And some might raise their hand and say, Paul, I mean, this is great. It's a nice theory and all. But, you know, if God's been working one way for 2,000 years where, you know, righteousness was based on works. This is what many Jews, many religious Jews in Paul's day taught, that you've got to be a good person to get to heaven. And now, all of a sudden, he's just changing his program in the last 20 years after 2,000 years of doing it the other way. They'd be like, look at some of the great heroes of the Old Testament. Look at Father Abraham, for example, the first ever Jew, one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. And the Jews uh, around and before the time of Christ had a lot to say about Abraham. If you look at some of the books written between the Old and the New Testament, they said things like this. Abraham was perfect in all his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by his righteousness throughout his life. He was just so good, God couldn't help but pick him and bless him. First Maccabees 2.52 says, Wasn't Abraham found faithful and tested? And it was credited to him as righteousness. Yeah, he was just so faithful to God, God had to count him as righteous. Sirach 44.19, Abraham, the great father of a multitude of nations, no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High, and when he was tested, he proved faithful. The glory, the perfection, the righteousness of Abraham. And so Paul says, okay, let's talk about Abraham. Let's see what the actual Bible has to say about Abraham and why he was considered righteous before God. What was so great about Abraham? He's the most famous Jew ever, the, the, the father of the Jewish race. Um, what was so great about him? And what Paul is going to look at here is what didn't make Abraham right before God and what did make him right before God. 
Romans chapter 4, verse 1 says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. Yes, he was the father of the Jews. And what did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. And so Paul says, first of all, Abraham was not made right before God by works, was not made righteous by his good deeds. For the scriptures tell us, he says, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Quoting the very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And since we're going to be referencing Abraham so much tonight, Paul just assumed his audience knew who Abraham was because they did. A lot of us might not really know Abraham or the story of Abraham, so we're going to have to sort of tell the story of his life in pieces because Paul kind of works his way chronologically through Abraham's life. So put a little timeline up on the screen here because this is important. Abraham was a guy who lived around 2000, 2100 BC, so we're talking almost 4,000 years ago, over 4,000 years ago. He lived over in the land of Babylon, modern day Iraq. And we don't know too much about Abraham for the first 75 years of his life. We know back then his name was Abram. And he was married, but him and his wife weren't able to have any kids. He was 75, she was 65. They hadn't had kids by now. Probably wasn't going to happen. He was an idol worshiper. Probably worshipped the moon god that was very popular in the land of Ur where he was from. And Abraham was living his life as a good little idol worshiper. When all of a sudden, one day at age 75, God appeared to Abraham and he called Abraham. You know, Abraham, he's there, he's just worshiping the moon god. His wife, Sarai, is named after the moon god's wife. And suddenly God calls out to him and he says, Abraham. He says, Abram. He says, I want you to leave your land where you've lived your whole life. And I want you to go to a land that I will show you, a land that I will give you. And he says, I am going to make you into a great and mighty nation. This guy who had no kids. He says, and I'm going to bless those who bless you. And those who, are, who try to harm you, I will protect you. And they will regret trying to harm you, Abraham. And he says, through you, I will make a mighty nation, and through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so, God calls Abraham, and Abraham obeys. We don't know how long it took him, but he decides to follow this God who's called out to him. And we don't, you know, I, I can't imagine what that conversation would have been like with the locals. Hey, God called out to me the real God, the one true God, and he told me to go to a land he's going to show me. And they'd be like, where is that? And he's like, I don't know. He said, go that way. And he'll let me know when I get there. And so he's leaving all of his wealth, all of his homeland, and he's taking just a few people with him. His wife, his nephew, his dad. His dad dies along the way. And so Abraham goes to this land. And he lives in the land for some time, maybe, maybe five years when a certain episode happens, he's about 80 years old, and he's living in the land, and he still doesn't have any kids, and he's thinking, God, how am I going to become a mighty nation? 
you know, I mean, it, it, maybe at one point he thought his nephew Lot was just going to inherit his wealth and become, you know, the head of the family, even though they weren't, you know, it wasn't his son. But then Lot takes off. And so Abraham's like, God, I, I mean, the best I got at this point is my head servant, Eliezer. Is he going to inherit all my wealth? Is that who you're going to make the mighty nation through? And God says, no, Abraham. He says, you will have a son from your own body who will be your heir. This will be a son that will come from you even though you're 80 and you haven't been able to have any kids yet. And he takes him outside and he says, look up at the stars. Can you count them? And Abraham says, no. And God says, so will your descendants be. So many that it will be like the stars on a dark, clear night. And it says in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Not that he was righteous because of his works. No, God credited it to him. He counted him righteous because of his faith. And this is the promise in Genesis chapter 15. And so Abraham, we can see right here in the scriptures, not righteous because of his works, or because he followed the law perfectly or because of his glory. No, it was because he trusted God. And this is the way to be right with God. It's a righteousness by faith. Paul has been saying the whole time. That was the way back then, and it's the same way today. He goes on to elaborate. He says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they've earned. But people are kind of righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. So he says, there's a difference between wages you earn and a gift that you just receive. You know, imagine that I go into work to pick up my paycheck next week, and standing there in my office is my boss with a big smile on his face. And I'm like, hey, Conrad, what's up? And he's like, I know you've been working really hard lately, and so I got you a little something. Hands me an envelope. So I look at the envelope. There's a big bow on top of it. I open it up. And what do I find inside? Lo and behold, my paycheck for the exact amount that I always get. And I'm like, okay, this is not a gift. This is my paycheck. I earned this. I worked for this. And so don't call it a gift because this is something you owe me. Or imagine, you know, it's, it's Christmas Day and you look out in front and there your parents are standing in the driveway and what you see is a car, a Lexus with a gigantic bow on top. And you're like, oh, and you run outside. And they're like, we got this for you. It's a gift. Merry Christmas. And you're like, thank you so much. This is, this is so expensive. You, couldn't, you shouldn't have done this. And like, oh, don't worry about it. We didn't pay for it. You paid for it. We went ahead and just set up the EFT to your bank account. It's, it's $1,200 a month for the next 10 years. Okay, once again, that's not a gift. It's something I paid for. And Paul is saying, if you work for it, it's not a gift. If it's something you pay for, it's wages. And that's not what we're talking about here. That was not something that Abraham worked for. It was something that God gave him. And God counts us as righteous, not because of our works, but because of our faith. And so another way of thinking about this is faith plus works equals works. 
Faith plus works equals works. Faith and works are two totally separate categories. And so anybody that's like, well, salvation is a little bit of faith and a little bit of works. Well, that's like saying it's free and it's 1200 bucks a month for the next 10 years. Okay, it's, it's not free. The free is canceled out by the cost, by the thing that you have to pay for the thing that you're getting. This is like God, he's using accounting language here. It's, it's, we're, we're being counted as righteous. It's being credited to our account. That's what that word is from. It's from the, the field of accounting. You know, when you go to the bank and you deposit 50 bucks, the bank takes your money and then they write 50 plus 50 bucks on your account. They credit that to your account. But what God is saying is, you went to the bank, you didn't make a deposit. And somebody else made a deposit into your account. And, you know, it's a moral deposit. And so, you know, if, if there was some way to, let's imagine there was some way to check our moral account balance, okay? So this would be, you pull up your app on your phone and you, you decide, I'm going to pull up my standing before God. And so here we have March 4, 2019. Description. Selfishness. That's a debit. What's my balance at this point? Oh, eternal death. <laughs> Crap. See if I can do better. Pride. Sin. What's my balance at this point? Still eternal death? Oh, no. March 5th. Lust. Another sin. Eternal death. Oh, no. Money laundering. <laughs> Definitely shouldn't have done that. <laughs> What's my balance at this point? Eternal death. <laughs> but then on, then on March 6th, something incredible happens. I trusted Christ to pay for my sins. We see a righteousness credit show up on my account. His righteousness, my account. What's my new balance? Oh, eternal life. What? Canceled out my bad balance. Credited me his balance. Man, this is awesome. What do I do now? Bitterness. Sin, oh, don't tell me. What's it say? Eternal life? Next day, jealousy, oh, definitely shouldn't have done that. It's another sin. What's my balance? Eternal life? Lying, sin. What's my balance? It's still eternal life. That balance is never going to change because Christ's righteousness has already been accomplished on the cross. It is finished. We receive it as a deposit into our account. And that's the good news. Can't be earned. There's no amount of good works that could work us out of the deficit that we're in. We're in far too deep a debt. And there's no bankruptcy declaration either. There's only the righteousness of Christ, the wealthy relative that swoops in and bails us out. And he's not just our relative, but God becomes our father and Christ becomes our brother. This is your standing before God, Paul says. This is what Abraham found. He goes on. He says, what about David? Another really famous guy in the Old Testament. If you had to pick the big three in the Old Testament, it would probably be David, Abraham, and Moses. He says, what did David find? David speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And David found the same thing. Check it out. Psalm 32. 
David writes, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Not blessed are those who never have any transgressions, who work to make up for any sins they might commit, who God's counting their sins against them, but they're working really hard to get it off their record. No. He says we're forgiven. Our sins are covered. God will never count our sins against us. And so there's a double reckoning going on here. Not only does God not count our sins against us, but he counts Christ's sins for us. And we need them both. You know, David, this is a point in his life where he had committed a really bad sin. He wrote this on the heels of this episode in his life where one day he was out on the roof, the top story of his, of his palace, and he was looking out and he sees this girl bathing on the roof. And he's like, man, it looks like my buddy's wife who's away at war. She's looking pretty good. He's like, maybe I'll just invite this, this girl, this Bathsheba over. Maybe we'll just, you know, maybe we'll talk about her husband, Uriah. I just want to see how she's feeling. Maybe she's a little lonely. Can help my buddy out. So she shows up at the palace, and right away she can tell there's something weird here. There's, there's Barry White music playing in the background. <laughs> David's sitting there with this really tight tank top on. And he's like, hey, Bathsheba. Have you seen my harp anywhere? It's about this big. I think I left it over there. (laughs) Yeah, one thing leads to another. Before they know it, they're in bed. And then she's pregnant. David tries to get Uriah to come back to sleep with her quickly. Maybe people won't notice the timing. On the kid, Uriah won't do it. So finally David has him killed in the front lines. And then he marries Bathsheba. Well, he just hides this for like a year. Covers it up. And then God confronts him and David says, you're right. I have totally messed up here. And, you know, back then, adultery was a capital crime in Israel. Even for the king. David says, I have no leg to stand on. God, I just need your forgiveness. And he experienced God's forgiveness. And he says, how blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Because I was, I was in debt, a debt I could not repay. David even goes on, he says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. This is the agony of when you can't admit that you're wrong and when you're hiding sin. But he says, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt and you forgave me and all my guilt is gone. It was that simple. I just had to admit to you, God, I had to trust you. I had to throw myself on the mercy of the king. And this is what Paul has been trying to do in this letter. He's saying, you need to admit to your guilt because that is the only solution to ask for forgiveness. He's been arguing that case. Some of us have never admitted we're wrong. And this is the first step toward, for coming to God is to admit that you're wrong. I've talked to people who are 70 years old and they're like, I've never admitted I was wrong in my whole life. Like it's something to be proud of. Are you going to be that person? You're going to come to God and let him teach you humility. 
Let him teach you the blessedness of forgiveness instead of trying to justify yourself. And I actually, as a side note, I'd be willing to bet there's some people here who are hiding sin like David was, have maybe been sitting on it for a while, and it's agony. I should know, because I've, I've hidden sin for a long time. And it was gnawing at me every day, and I can't tell you how relieved I was when I finally came out with it. And tonight would be the best night to do that. The best time to come clean with sin is right now, as soon as possible, before you get your will hardened again to keep on hiding it. Experience what David is experiencing here. This, this relief. Ultimately, you can experience a righteousness apart from works. And so the point here is that the greatest men in the Old Testament were not justified by works. Both David and Abraham talk about a righteousness that is credited, not by works, but by faith. And so some people in the audience might be like, well, you know, maybe it wasn't Abraham's works per se, that he was a really good person. Maybe it was that he performed the ritual of circumcision. That was a big deal to his audience. That was a big debate in the early church. Some people were like, look, there are non-Jews that are becoming, they want to become Christians. And a Jew got circumcised when he was eight days old, Jewish males. And a lot of the Jewish Christians are saying, well, if you want to become a Christian, you got to get circumcised too. And they took great pride in their circumcision. And if there was an adult, a male, a, a, a guy who was an adult, who was a Gentile that wanted to become a Christian, you could see where circumcision would be a huge barrier to him coming to faith in Christ. And they're like, maybe it was because of Abraham's circumcision. Maybe it was the ritual that he performed. A lot of people equate faith with ritual. Let's see. Paul says, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we've been saying Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Interesting. So we, we need the chronology of Abraham's life. When was his circumcision in relation to when God counted him righteous? Well, in Genesis 15, God makes that promise to Abraham when he was maybe 80 years old. Well, several more years go by. Nothing. Him and Sarah are just not able to have a kid. And Sarah may have been thinking to herself, you know, in Genesis 15, God said, Abraham, it will be from your own body. And she's probably thinking, you know what? Who are we kidding? I'm the problem here. And so she goes to Abraham when he's 86 years old. And the Ishmael incident happens. What was the Ishmael incident? Well, Sarah goes, Sarai goes to Abram and says, you know what? Yahweh, God, has kept me from having children. This is obvious. Let's just, let's just admit it. Let's stop pretending. I can't take this anymore. And so she says, but I got an idea, Abram. I want you to go have sex with my servant Hagar. Maybe I can build a family through her. You know, back then, if somebody couldn't have a child, you, you could put forward your servant, and the husband could sort of take her as sort of like a, like a second wife. And then if she had a kid, you could kind of adopt her, and she could be like the heir to the family. And so Abram's like, wait a minute, so you're telling me you think it's God's will for me to go and have sex with this young woman who kind of helps out around the tent? And Sarah's like, yeah. 
And Abram's like, okay. And he does. And they have a kid. And his name is Ishmael. And it actually creates a lot of problems in this household. The Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Abraham dynamic. But um, as far as they know, this is the answer to God's promise. They accomplished it on their own. And um, they got it. They got a boy. And so Ishmael, he goes through infancy, toddler, childhood. He's getting to be a teenager. He's 13 years old. And then God shows up to Abraham again. When Abraham is 99 years old, and God says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you and Sarah a kid. And by the way, you need to go and get circumcised. And he does. More on that in a minute. But the point is, Abraham was considered righteous back when he was 80 years old or so. He wasn't circumcised until he was 99. So how could it be that circumcision or any ritual is why he was counted as righteous? And so Abraham, Paul says, was it before or after? He says, clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. So not only was he not justified by works, he's also not justified by ritual. And a lot of people put a lot of hope in ritual. God's, Paul says circumcision was a sign Abraham already had faith. And that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. Yeah, the rituals that God gives, they don't, they're supposed to reflect an inner reality. They're supposed to communicate something. They don't make us a certain way. They, they reflect something. These are teaching tools that God gave his people. Abraham did this, this thing, this ritual, because he already had a faith relationship with God, because he was already considered righteous. So Abraham's a spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They're counted as righteous because of their faith. So these would be the Gentiles. There were some people in Paul's audience who were uncircumcised, and he says, Abraham, he may not be your genetic father, Gentiles, but he is your spiritual father. And Abraham's also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. So some of Paul's audience were circumcised too. And Paul's saying, you might be a Jew, you might be circumcised, but if you're not coming to God by faith, then Abraham is not your spiritual father. He was the first one to walk in these steps that, we, that is explicitly declared in Scripture. Although people had faith, obviously, before Abraham. A lot of people. But he's like, look, some of you are circumcised, some of you are uncircumcised. God's question is, is your trust in Christ alone? Or are you trusting in your rituals? The things you do, the religious things you do for God. And some of us here have done a lot of rituals. We've done baptisms, we've done washings, we've done church attendance, we've done prescribed prayers by the thousands, we've uh, given money, we've done pilgrimages, we've observed dietary laws, we've eaten this, we didn't eat that, we didn't eat that this time of year or on Fridays or whatever. Uh, we've observed holy days, we've uh, maybe magic spells, I don't know what we've done, but there's, r r ritual is huge in religion. People are doing all kinds of motions and hand motions and head motions and chants. God says, I don't want your rituals. I want your heart. I want a relationship. I want your trust. 
Some of us define our faith by the rituals we do and the rituals we have done, and that is not faith. For Abraham, faith came first. Ritual came much later. God's question is, is your trust in Christ alone? Is your trust in Christ alone? Are you putting your, your trust in your rituals that you've done? Or are you putting your trust in Christ? God doesn't want us going through the motions. God doesn't want us to do some sort of spiritual hokey pokey and then all of a sudden he's cool with us. No. He wants a relationship. Trust in him. That's how Abraham was made righteous. Not by works, not by ritual. Although some people might be like, well, maybe, maybe he was like, it wasn't that he was a good person in general, but maybe he really very specifically followed the law of Moses. Maybe he followed God's specific list of rules, and that's why he was righteous before God. Well, let's see. What does Paul say? He says, clearly... God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes through faith. And he says clearly, because if you look at the chronology of Abraham, how old was Abraham when God revealed the law of Moses? Where does it fall in this timeline? It doesn't. Abraham was dead by the time God revealed the law of Moses. In fact, you'd have to go about 500 years to the right on this timeline to even get to the, de- the time of Moses where God gives the law. And so, if the law didn't come until 500 years later, then how in the world could Abraham have been made right by the law? Which is what so many religious people in Paul's audience were hoping in and what so many of us, so many people today hope in as well. And so he says, no, not by works, not by ritual like circumcision, not by law either, Paul says. Because law and promise, Abraham got a promise. Law and promise are in two completely different categories. And he goes on to contrast the two. In this this verse here that we just read, look at what he says about promise. He says promise. You know, God started with a promise to Abraham. He promised to give the whole earth to Abraham. And his descendants. And Abraham's response was faith. We read. He believed God. He believed the promise. That's what faith does. It trusts in something. A promise made by someone. And then, God gives. That's how it works. God promises. We trust. He gives. And then finally, he says he gave to Abraham. We receive promise, we trust, God gives, we receive. That's how it works. That's the dynamic of faith. And faith is crucial to this interchange. Faith is the key to unlocking the blessing of God. God's got so much he wants to give you, but if you won't trust him, he can't give it to you. Paul goes on and he says, if God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings judgment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. Yeah, Paul's going to say a lot of crazy things about the law. You're not going to believe what he says about the law. But here we can see he's contrasting it with promise. And he says, with law, you try to obey the law. That's what we do. We We don't trust anything. We trust in self. And we do. 
And he says, then we break the law. And then that brings judgment. It brings all kinds of bad things in our life. That's what he's been arguing in Genesis, or in Romans 1, 2, and 3. The judgment that comes to those on our own. We're trying to live the law because we can't do it. He says, no, we've got to switch over. We've got to switch over to promise. As John Stott says, law language says you shall and it demands our obedience. But in promise language, God says, I will. It demands our faith. What God said to Abraham was not obey this law and I will bless you. But I will bless you. Believe my promise. God has made you promises. Will you believe his promises? Well, then for the the rest of the passage, he's told us Abraham wasn't made right by works or ritual or law. He was made right by faith. And we're going to see what was Abraham's faith. Well, back to our timeline here. You know, in Genesis 17, Abram is, he's 99 years old. He's got his son who he thinks is the child of promise, the one that God is going to use to make a mighty nation through him. And then God shows up again in Genesis 17, and it says, God Almighty appeared. And he says to Abram, he says, I'm going to rename you. Your name's going to be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. That's what that name means, father of many nations. He says to a guy who was barely able to get one son out when he was 86 years old. And he says, as for Sarai, her name will be Sarah, which means princess. And he says, I will bless her, and I will surely give you a son by her. And Abraham, he thought this was so ridiculous. He starts laughing at the promise of God. And he says, God, come on. We've been, I can't keep putting my wife through this. No, we got, we got Ishmael. He's the guy. And God says, no. It's a mighty nation from you and her. Abraham's 99, Sarah's 89. And Abraham believes God. And God says, you're going to have a child, and all you got to do now is get circumcised. You need to take a flint knife and do a delicate operation on the part of the male anatomy that is like the most important part when it comes to reproduction. And Abraham's like, oh, that's exactly what I need right now. That'll help. But he believes God. And he goes back to camp and he goes, God's been talking to me again. And they're like, really? And he goes, yeah, my, my new name is Father of Many Nations. And uh, I'm going to call her Princess from now on. And God says that uh, me and Princess are going to have a son. <laughs> and now all I got to do is circumcise myself and everyone I know. A lot of guys put in their two-week notice that day, I think. (laughs) But Abraham went through with it. And wouldn't you know, less than a year later, he was holding his baby boy Isaac. God told him, he says, when you have this boy, I want you to name him Isaac, which means laughter. Because every time you call his name, 
I want you to remember how ridiculous it sounded to you that I was going to keep my promise. And I kept my promise anyway. Paul tells it this way. He says, that's what the scriptures mean when God told him, I've made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Yeah, Abraham saw three things in this situation. First of all, he saw the power of God, the God who brings the dead back to life, the God who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. Why? Well, God said to him, that's how many descendants you'll have. And so he saw not only the power of God, but he also saw the promises of God. He knew the power of God. He'd been experienced. He'd, he'd been walking with God for 20 years, 25 years by now. He knew the promises of God. He'd seen God come through time and time again in little ways, in big ways. He'd taken scary steps of faith. And he'd seen God's promises confirmed. He'd seen the utter trustworthiness of God. But there was a third thing on his radar. It says, Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was good as dead. Yeah, he may have even been impotent by this point in his life. His body as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. And so he saw, in addition to the power and promises of God, he saw the obstacles to the promise. But where do you think Abraham set his sights? On which of those three things? He never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, giving glory to God and he was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. Yeah, Abraham saw the obstacles. He, he was clear on that. But it says at this point when he's 99, Paul says he did not waver in his faith anymore. It's like he was convinced. He went back. He got circumcised. And within a few months of that operation, they had conceived. He had a kid within a year. And it says in verse 20, his faith grew stronger. He had to wrestle through. What has God said? Do I really believe it? What's God's track record? And it says he was giving glory to God, going around rejoicing. I'm going to have a boy. Imagine a stranger traveling through seeing Abraham going around rejoicing about this son he's going to have. You might be like, wow, is your wife pregnant? How far along is she? And he goes, oh, she's not pregnant. We're going to get pregnant. Oh, really? Okay. Um, did you guys just start trying? No, we've been trying for about 70 years. Okay. So why are you so happy? Well, because God is powerful and God promised that I'm going to have a son. And I've seen God work over and over again. And he said, this time next year, you're going to have a son. And I'm tired of waiting. And I'm glad that God finally has brought my wait to an end. And this is one of the challenges in faith is the waiting. It takes a lot longer than we think. But Abraham kept trusting in God. And he was convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. You see, biblical faith is not blind faith. It's not believing in spite of the evidence. It's not believing in an absence of evidence. No, it's reasonable. It's rational. It's I've seen this and this and this. You know, some of the things that we've seen, 
would be the, the apologetics we studied back in our series in Romans 1. We spent several weeks on that. But also seeing the promises of God, but also seeing God come through on those promises. It's as we walk with God, we learn to trust him more and more. We see just how powerful he is. It's not pretending that something false is true. Some people have that idea of faith. That's, that's not biblical faith. It's not wishful thinking where I just, you know, I'm trying to tell myself a happy story to make myself feel less scared. It's also not mind power where I believe it and then the pow- I somehow harness the power of the universe to make this thing happen, like New Age. No. John Stott says, the description of faith as reasonable comes as a surprise to many. Since they always supposed faith and reason were alternative means of grasping reality, mutually incompatible. Is faith a synonym for credulity and even superstition? Is it not an excuse for irrationality for what Bertrand Russell called a conviction which cannot be shaken by contrary evidence? No. Although to be sure faith goes beyond reason, it always has a firmly rational basis. In particular, faith is believing or trusting a person. And its reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. It's always reasonable to trust the trustworthy, and there's nobody more trustworthy than God. Abraham knew that by this point in his life. And enabled him to take some pretty amazing steps of faith. And we can see this even more clearly because we stand on this side of the cross. And we see the love of God and how God's fulfilled all his promises. And they're all yes in Jesus Christ. Biblical faith is where you've become convinced through study and experience of the power and promises of God. And so if there's any obstacles to the promise, you see them through that lens, the lens of the power and promises of God. For a lot of people, all they can see is number three. You've got the obstacles to the promise, the power of God, the promises of God. Very small, very insignificant. For people of faith, it's the power of God, the promises of God. Eh, Obstacles, yeah. I wonder how God will deal with those. It's kind of exciting to see how it unfolds. People of faith spend their lives growing in their understanding of the first two here. God's power, God's promises. Remember Paul said it's a righteousness by faith from first to last. This is how we begin the Christian life. For salvation... We might be like, I've done too many bad things, God. He could never accept me. But then we open up our heart to him. And we believe that he offers it free of charge as a gift. We want that deposit into our account. And then we receive from him. But it also applies to spiritual growth, as we'll see as the next several chapters unfold in Romans. You know, I remember as a young Christian, being hopelessly addicted to several different sins that I thought I was never going to get victory over. In addition to those, I was totally closed off, very socially awkward. Uh, I would go to like Christian meetings, like a home church, and I would just get kind of freaked out. And I would make up an excuse to leave early. I would make up flimsy excuses just to skip out altogether. And I started reading the promises of God, and God started showing me some things about what he wanted to give me. He started sensitizing me to some of these different issues in my life. And I I felt pretty hopeless to have victory over, but God was like, look, your job, what I'm asking for from you is you need to start showing up regularly to this home church. And 
put yourself in a position where I can work, okay? And I was like, okay, I can do that. And he was like, you need to start opening up to some of the people in this group. You need to start telling about what's really going on inside that heart of yours. I was like, man, that's scary. So I remember taking these little steps of faith and putting myself out there and being so welcomed by people. So relieved. Things I'd hidden for years, finally telling someone and having them accept me with grace and with an understanding that's really not as bad as you think it is. And there's other people here that have struggles like that too. And it's cool, man. And I saw God begin to change me. Not because he beat the sin out of me, but because he replaced it with something better. The power and promises of God. I began to experience those. I began to experience a trust relationship with him. This right here was the source of every step of faith Abraham took in his life. He became famous. He became the father of the Jewish nation. One of the most famous men, probably the most famous man ever to live. Besides Jesus Christ. And... Abraham was known as God's friend. That's one of the great things about Abraham. He had a walk with God, a relationship with God, and this is what he's famous for. He trusted God, who proven himself trustworthy, and he did amazing things. And so, what have we seen? We've seen that God is faithful, powerful, and he's true to his word. That he's trustworthy, and it's reasonable to trust a trustworthy person. And he asks us to respond by trusting him. That's what God wants you to do. And I got this question for you. Do you have a spiritual father? Are you a spiritual orphan? Because scripture says we can walk in the steps of Abraham and he can be sort of like a spiritual father. He's the father of faith and we can have faith of a similar kind. We can receive righteousness. God can say about us by trusting in God. And ultimately, we don't become really a child of Abraham. We become a child of God. As it says in John 1, to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's the faith of Abraham. Yeah, Lord, you don't want us to go through the motions or try to work off our debt, but you just want us to admit our inability to drop our pride, to come to you in humility, and to receive from you, and to begin a relationship. God, you also want us to grow in our relationship with you, learning to trust you more, each step built on previous experiences and things we've learned about you. God, I pray that you would turn us here into men and women of faith, God, people who have faith that um, can, can stay focused on your power and your promises, no matter what obstacles are facing us, Lord. And that we'd be able to hang tight in there with you and can continue to rejoice in your promises even when, even when everything seems turned against it. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.